Our passage today is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. We're going to find today a situation addressed in Scripture that I don't think I've ever heard addressed in a sermon. That's not to say that it never has been. I'm sure that it has, uh, but any of the churches I grew up going to, I've never heard this addressed in a sermon, in spite of the fact that this situation touches all of us. We, uh, Many of us are in this situation at one point or another in our lives. We all have people that we love dearly who are in this situation, in our families, our friendship circles, uh, in our, our Christian community. And uh, it's one of the most difficult marital circumstances one can find themselves in. But I've never really heard it preached. And here again is another reason why I, I uh, strongly favor preaching through books of the Bible is it enables us to see the full counsel of God's word and passages that otherwise we might not land on. So we've been moving through 1 Corinthians uh, every summer for a couple of years now. In fact, I'll tell you, 2015 is when we began. And uh, we find ourselves in chapter 7. We've been looking at chapter 7 for several weeks, and we've seen Paul address different specific matters regarding marriage. We've seen him address uh, marital intimacy. We've seen him briefly touch on uh, the situation of those who are unmarried or widowed. We've seen him talk about divorce, and we've seen him talk about uh, what to do after divorce a little bit. And now we're going to enter into a section that has to do with Christians who are married to non-Christians. Christians who are married to non-Christians. And this happens frequently in our culture, and it was very common in the Corinthian culture that Paul was addressing. So what I'd like for us to do is pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll just read the whole passage together in one fail swoop, and we'll go through it and and listen to what the Lord has to say in it. So would you pray with me? Father, please, um, as we study your word, give us clarity for our own personal circumstances and hope where things could seem hopeless and direction where things could seem confusing and and give us insight into this unique situation so that we can love and serve the people that we know and care about who are in this situation. People that might come to us for advice. May this equip us to, to give them good, biblically sound advice. Lord, in all things, we hope to honor you and please you and Help us to receive this word. Be transformed by it. Help it to change the way we view the world and our own personal lives and relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So let's start by reading 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 16 together. Paul just got done going through those various marital circumstances I mentioned before, and then verse 12. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. And that just means that he is not relaying a specific teaching that Jesus said and was recorded. It doesn't mean that it's any less authoritative. It's still God's word. Paul is still speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's just not relaying direct teaching that Jesus spoke during his time on earth. That's what that means, I, not the Lord. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him 
he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul, addressing the different various circumstances that the Corinthian Christians find themselves in in terms of marriage, lands on this topic. Christians married to non-Christians. Believers married to unbelievers. And his initial advice is very straightforward. Christian spouse married to a non-Christian spouse don't initiate divorce. Verses 12 and 13. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now that seems pretty straightforward, but for us to really understand what he's saying and why he's saying it, it'll be helpful to think about what the Corinthians' culture would have been like and felt like what their experience would have been. Because this is an ancient culture. It's not exactly the same as ours. So we need to try to walk in their shoes for a minute. The city of Corinth was deeply, comprehensively idolatrous. Corinthians were pagan idolaters. They worshipped any number of false gods. So idolatry was central to the culture in Corinth when the gospel got there and when people began to become Christians. Now, this idolatry was woven into the nervous system of the household. Corinthian households were all about idolatry. To where idol worship would have had a place in birthday celebrations, mealtimes, decisions, weddings... It was all woven throughout the worship of these various gods. So that's one factor that I think we need to keep in mind. The household was deeply religious, and the religion was idolatry. Maybe they were worshiping Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Uh, Maybe they were worshiping Apollos, the goddess of beauty. I mean, the god of beauty. It could have been any one of these idols was happening a lot in the household. Now, that's part A. Part B, the household was the center for every aspect of life. So for us, it it might be some of our situations where our household is just sort of where we land. It's kind of our docking station where we recharge. We go there to sleep at night, maybe a couple of meals, but mainly we work elsewhere. We socialize elsewhere. We worship elsewhere. That's not the way the Corinthian household worked. The Corinthian Corinthian household is where commerce happened, business happened, civic life happened, social life happened. If you walk down a street in Corinth, if you could look through the windows and doors, you would have seen a lot of activity in the households. You would have seen shrines to various idols, 
people potentially worshiping at these shrines. You would have seen business deals happening, civic meetings happening, social meetings happening. So idolatry was central to the household. The household was central to every aspect of life, okay? So get that, just that vibe in your mind as you think about what these Corinthian Christians would have been trying to deal with. Now, it's not altogether different from our culture, where if we have a Christian married to a non-Christian, there is some conflict. But there, everything would have been thrown into conflict. Every decision would have been opportunity for conflict between the two spouses, because one is trying to honor and obey Jesus Christ, trying to live out his or her new convictions, new priorities, worshiping the one true God through Jesus Christ. And the other would have been obeying this legion of false gods. Every decision, every birthday, every wedding, every mealtime, opportunity for dysfunction, opportunity for conflict, disagreement. Now, in our culture, the non-Christian spouse around here, I'm painting with a broad brush, but typically the non-Christian spouse thinks of himself or herself as a Christian and generally is agreeable to Christian morality in general. And so the difference between the Christian spouse and the non-Christian spouse can sometimes be, be pretty subtle. It may be that the Christian spouse wants to go to church on Sunday mornings. The non-Christian spouse says, that's fine, I'm just going to be watching TV. No big deal. But there, it was always a big deal, always an aggravant to the non-Christian spouse especially. I came across a quote in one of the commentaries I consulted this week. I didn't mean to leave it all the way over there. This kind of captures this phenomenon in a more modern context. Um, I'll, just, I'll just read the story to you. It says, A Cape Town brain surgeon put it most movingly. Well, let me back up. He's talking about the impact on a family, a household, when one of the uh, spouses becomes a Christian and the other does not. And he says, the devastating impact of such an event, not least in what can genuinely be called a very good marriage, cannot be overestimated. A Cape Town brain surgeon put it most movingly when asked what he found so difficult about his wife's newfound faith in Christ. He stressed two things. First, she was no longer the person with whom he had originally fallen in love and whom he had decided to marry. It's a complete change when somebody becomes a Christian. It's a complete change when somebody in our Christianized culture, our churchy culture, becomes a Christian. How much more so in pagan Corinth? Secondly, there was another man about the house to whom she was all the time referring her every decision and whom she chose to consult for his advice and instructions. He was no longer the boss in his own house. Jesus gave the orders and set the pace. So just imagine how intrusive this must have seemed to the non-Christian spouse. They're going along, living their lives comfortably well in the Corinthian culture, worshiping the same gods as all the neighbors, all the business partners, their whole social network. And all of a sudden, your spouse renounces all those commonly held gods and holds to one God, Jesus Christ, and begins obeying Jesus over her husband. You can imagine the conflict. And I think that's why the language here is as it is. It says, 
if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, if she can agree to deal with this, if she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So the question is, can the unbelieving spouse put up with this? Now, again, in our culture, it's not always as dramatic, but the tension is still there. If you are married to a non-believer and you become a Christian, if you are genuinely following your new convictions from your new heart in Jesus Christ, allowing his priorities to reshape yours, it will not only be noticeable, it will be painful for the non-believing spouse. And the question becomes, can they deal with it? Can they consent to live with this going on? If so, the believing spouse should not divorce him, should not initiate divorce. Now, again, in our culture, as we first read these two verses, you might think, well, this is irrelevant. Nobody here thinks they should divorce their husband or their wife because they're not a Christian. But I'll bet this was a major question for these folks. I'll bet this was a daily issue for them as the gospel swept through and as new people were added to the church out of these pagan, this pagan culture. So let's move on to the next verse, one of the most confusing verses I've ever tried to preach to you. Verse 14. So he's just said, if your unbelieving spouse will live with you, if they will consent to keep living with you, don't divorce him, don't divorce her. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What in the world is he talking about? I mean, if you know anything about what the Bible says about how you're made holy, it's not through who you marry. It's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we first read this, it sounds like he's saying, don't divorce him because it almost sounds like he's saying, because he's saved for being married to you. He's saved because she's married to you. And your children are saved because you're married. And they'd be unclean otherwise. Isn't that kind of how it strikes you when you first read it? And there's no other teaching in Scripture that sounds like that about marriage. It's very confusing. And we need to approach this verse with great humility because I have read and read and read this week because I knew I was going to be, again, my commitment to preaching through books means I have to preach 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. And so I, I read widely and deeply this week trying to understand what he's talking about here. And there are a variety of opinions. There's no consensus. The, the most consensus I could find were people who said, Paul doesn't explain himself, we'll never know. And people just gave up. Scholars who wrote 30-page academic examinations of this verse, just giving up. And so here's Matt Broadway to give you my opinion. When these people much smarter than me, uh, who, who were able to spend much more time in this, who know Greek, who know the Corinthian history, gave up. Um, I really wrestled with if I should even give you my take on it because, um, you know, I consulted 
modern-day pastor preachers, John Piper, John MacArthur, if you know who these people are, Tim Keller. I consulted academics and scholars. I consulted ancient people from Calvin up. And there really isn't a good consensus. So I'm going to give you my take. Um, I, I prayed my way to it, and, and I, I feel some confidence in it, but also because these men who I deem to be much smarter than me some disagree with my take. I just want to, I'm presenting it to you for consideration. Um, you need to pray through this, study this. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to make clear what's true here, but I'll give you my take and it'll help you to try to get to what's true. Okay. I don't want to belabor that point too much, but remember when you're reading a letter in the Bible, you're hearing one side of a conversation. So it's like overhearing a phone conversation. You just hear the person that's present with you. You don't hear the person on the other end of the phone. And so you're piecing together what this conversation is about. This is one of several letters Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We don't even have all of his letters to the Corinthians, and we don't have any of the Corinthians' letters to Paul. We know that this is a letter in which he's responding to a previous letter from the Corinthians. And so he's not just pulling things out of the air, giving some random advice. He's responding to some specific issues going on in the church. So keep that in mind first, overall. Now, when we look back at chapters 1 through 7, there's three clues that stand out that I believe help us understand what he's talking about in verse 14. The first one, and we're going to read some quick scriptures so I can prove these out to you. They were confused about sanctification. That phrase, made holy, is the same word for sanctified, to set apart for God. I think the Corinthian Christians were confused about what it meant to be sanctified, to be made holy in Christ. Remember, they're coming from this confusing, pagan, idolatrous culture. Of course they were confused. So let me just read a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2 As he's addressing the church, he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He stresses to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. He goes on a little bit later, verses 7 through 8, talking about what Jesus has done for them. He says, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless. This is a part of this picture of sanctification and being made holy. He sustains you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Later on in chapter 6, he goes into all the different immorality that they would have seen going on in Corinth. Starting in verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This is where you came from. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So you already see this theme of him trying to straighten out 
They're understanding you're not like that anymore. You're guilt-free. You're sanctified in Jesus Christ. So I think that they were having some confusion about sanctification. Another clue comes from chapter 3. They were spiritually immature. If you'll remember back when we studied chapter 3, he wrote, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So they had some confusion about sanctification. They were spiritually immature. And then the third clue I want to point out, I think they also had a lot of confusion about sexuality. I think they had a lot of confusion about sexuality. I'm not going to read all these passages because I'm afraid it'll get tedious hearing all these. I'm just going to mention the passages. You can jot them down to read them. But we see their confusion about sexuality all throughout the book. Uh, In the beginning of chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 1 and on, we see that they were accepting some gross sexual immorality into the life of the church. Even incest, they were accepting into the church. And then chapter 6, verses 15 through 20, we see that some of the Christians were going to the prostitutes. One of the idols, Aphrodite, had this huge temple up on a hill, and they employed a thousand prostitutes that they would send down into the city at night. And part of the worship of this goddess of love was to visit these prostitutes. And it seems like part of the church culture, some of these people were doing this. So they were accepting sexual immorality into the church while at the same time trying to separate themselves from sexually immoral people who are outside of the church. In verse uh, chapter 5, verses 9 through 13, Paul's trying to explain to them, it's not the non-Christians who are engaged in sexual immorality that you need to avoid. It's the Christians, those who call themselves brothers, who are into this stuff that you need to avoid. Don't accept Christians who embrace these things. And then in chapter 7, beginning what we read two weeks ago, some of them, in trying to figure out how to be holy in regard to their sexuality, were abstaining from marital intimacy. Within marriage, they were refusing to be maritally intimate because they thought maybe that would make them holy in this regard. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, but the picture we get is one of a lot of confusion about what it means to be holy and sanctified now that they're Christians and how this affects their sexuality and their marriages and their their most intimate relationships. So all that said, if I lost any of you in all that, I think what he's addressing in verse 14 is the fact that some of these new Christians were wondering, do I need to divorce my pagan idolater husband? Because if I don't, he'll make me unclean before God. Do I need to divorce my pagan idolater wife? Because if I don't, she'll make me unholy. Before God, I I think they genuinely were wanting to honor God and be holy. And it was just very, very confusing because of the culture they were coming from. And so what Paul is saying in verse 14 is, no, your marriage is still good. Even though you're a Christian, he or she is not a Christian, it doesn't defile the marriage. It doesn't make the marriage something unholy in God's eyes. The fact that you are a Christian 
makes them holy. It makes your marital relationship holy. Your marriage to a non-Christian can be worship. Your love for a non-Christian spouse can be holy. It's not that the unbelieving pagan idolater spouse infects you with their unholiness. Quite the opposite. Yours brings holiness into the marriage. Calvin summed it up neatly. He says, Godliness, the godliness of one spouse does more to sanctify the marriage than the ungodliness of the other does to make it unclean. I think that's the idea that he's getting across. In order to be holy and honor God, you don't need to leave your non-Christian spouse. They're not going to taint you. I, I think this makes the most sense of the very last bit about the children. The very last bit of verse 14 where it says, Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. I think what he's saying is, if this weren't the case, if your marriage wasn't still good and holy because of your faith in Christ, that would mean your children were unclean. And you know that that's not the case. You know that your children are not somehow made um, profane or something because your spouse is not a Christian. And if that's the case, then you know that your marriage isn't profane either. It's still good. Marriage is still good. So that, I think that's what he's saying. Think about it, pray about it, study it. You may land with some of the others who think it's different. But I think that's what he's saying. So, Christian who is married to a non-Christian spouse, don't initiate divorce if they will consent to live with you. Your marriage is still good. You don't need to get out of it in order to please the Lord. But then... He goes on to verse 15 and presents sort of another side of this. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Don't initiate divorce. But if your unbelieving spouse will not consent to live with you and your new Christian character and convictions, if they insist upon divorce... You are not bound to desperately try to hold it together. You are free to hold loosely your marriage in regard to what your spouse is going to do. You are under no obligation to manipulate or control what they're going to do. You be faithful. You love him. You love her. But you are not responsible for controlling what they do. So if they initiate divorce, let it be so. You're not enslaved. God has called you to peace. The image that comes to my mind is when you're holding a cat and the cat is done with it. The best thing to do is not to wrench harder, hold it harder. The cat will leave and you will just get scratched up. And I think that's the picture he's painting here. You're not obligated to try to hang on to your non-Christian spouse who cannot consent to live with this any longer. In fact, he does, now this is going beyond the bounds of what he says here, but if you've ever read Love Must Be Tough by James Dobson, it's a really interesting book. But he argues, somewhat in light of this passage, that the trying to hang on actually massively aggravates the whole situation. 
And sometimes the most loving thing you can do is give them the space to make their decisions. Trust in the Lord enough to be secure. You don't have to try to control what they're going to do. And then verse 16. Verse 16, again, is a little confusing, but I, I think it makes sense, though. It, it lands in a place of humility and hopefulness. He writes, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? He doesn't elaborate a whole lot on that. I think that's meant to sort of sum up what he said in, in all the verses we've covered so far this morning. I think what he's saying is, You don't know what the Lord may do. Faithfully love your non-Christian spouse. You don't know. Maybe God will save them. Or trust in the Lord enough to let them go. You don't know. Maybe the Lord will save them. Perhaps in your faithfully remaining in the marriage, the Lord will save your spouse. Perhaps in your peacefully letting go, the Lord will save your spouse. We don't know. So we're humble, but God may do it, so we're hopeful. Now, we've addressed a very specific situation in an ancient church. What we don't want to do from this is make big blanket rules that in sort of a a ham-fisted and dumb way... uh, determine what we're going to do in marital situations that can be extremely complex and difficult to navigate. If you personally have a really difficult marital situation, my advice to you is to seek a lot of good counsel. Get a lot of good advice from people that know the Bible. Older Christian friends, relatives that you know, pastors, teachers, counselors, Because marital issues are very difficult to navigate. They're full of so much emotion, such complicated histories. Uh, Perceptions get skewed. It's difficult to even know what's real anymore. So what I don't want anybody to do is, is leave here and make big, rash decisions and have big, dangerous conversations. Seek counsel. If you're, if you're giving advice to anybody who is in a very difficult marital situation, advise them, seek a lot of counsel. Pray, read the Bible, seek counsel with people that know the Bible. But where I'd like to end today, I want to land on the next verse and take one step into what we'll look at next time. And I think this is the best and most appropriate place to land. In all of these specific things Paul is teaching about marriage, there, there's a bigger idea that he's getting at and that he's getting to. And verse 17 captures it. I can't remember if it's up here to be projected or not. Verse 17 says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. I think the bigger idea is that you don't have to make any big situational changes in order to lead the life that God has assigned to you. You Whether you are married, whether you are unmarried, 
whether you are widowed, whether you're married to a non-Christian, right where you are is your assignment. Right where you are is your calling. And you don't have to make any big circumstantial, situational changes in order to be at peace and in order to lead the life that God has called you to and assigned to you. Look around you right now. You're already there. I think that's the bigger idea he's getting at. And we can think that, oh, if I were just married, or oh, if I were just single, or oh, if I just wasn't divorced, or oh, if my situation wasn't so complicated, or oh, if only my husband or my wife was a Christian, then I could please the Lord. Then I could live obediently to him. Then I could be at peace. Then I could lead the life that the Lord has called me to. And what Paul is saying is, no, that's not how to think about these things. So if you're married to an unbeliever and they'll consent to live with you, stick with it. That's your assignment right now. If they insist on a divorce, let it be. That must be the new unfolding assignment for you. But we end on a note of God's goodness. God has called you to peace. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Let's pray. Father, I have found this to be a complicated and difficult passage, and I just ask that you would iron out any wrinkles in it in our memories. Uh, Anything I've said that's off base, out, out of tune with what's true, Lord, just cancel it out of our memories or bring somebody to correct our thinking on it. And I pray for each and every person you brought here today and their unique situation, that you would enable them to be at peace through Jesus Christ, that you would enable them to lead the life you've assigned to them, called them to. In Jesus' name, amen.